on the move on the move on the move good people welcome back this is mike africa jr and this is my podcast where we illuminate the struggles of the people inform the uninformed and give you nothing but the truth on the move is here to disrupt the system and spark a global revolutionary change today i'm talking with someone that i've known for a little while she is a core organizer for black lives matter philly and the black philly radical collective she's a professor at the university of pennsylvania and the Graduate School of Education, where her research and teaching focuses on student and community activism, global black youth cultures, and the role of schools as sites of political struggles. She is an organizer in the work that centers abolition, educational justice, political prisoners, and pan-African solidarity. She's got a lot of things on her resume. Now, y'all know on the move is like aloha. It's how we say hello and it's how we say goodbye. Everybody say on the move to Crystal Strong. Dr. Crystal Strong. How you doing, Chris? Yo, Mike. How on you the feel? move. On the move, on the move. How you feel today? I feel good. Feel good? It's always a, a privilege to be in the podcast a studio. A privilege? It is. Not everybody gets to come to the podcast studio. That's true. Not everybody gets to come to the podcast studio. And as we were talking about earlier, not everyone makes it. Not everybody makes the cut. Every episode, I like to do this thing called Gimme Two, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, a lot of people don't know that we're multifaceted. Right. They think that all that we do is protest and scream and holler and hold signs and all of that. But right. there's a lot more to activists than protesting. So I have a thing that I like to do it, it, it is to talk about two things that inspired me this week. That either I did for someone or someone did for me or something that I just thought was inspiring. The first one for me is I cleaned up my yard. Rob Cat had this honeydew list for me and it was long. And part of it in, in, entailed cleaning the yard and getting the place looking presentable. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I did that I've been working on, and this is an ongoing process. I'm planning Rob Cat and I's 25th year together. Wow. 25 years. So we're old. (laughs) You old, bro. Uh, I've heard that before. But that's impressive. I think that is impressive. impressive. Thank you very much. And y'all still going, still in love. Still going, still still strong, and still old. Yep. Washed. (laughs) Well, no, I ain't washed. Them pants that y'all had me in at uh, that, that, the we event had that y'all had me in. The, okay. Yeah, 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 See yeah. how you revising history? I, that's, that's okay, though. That's, that's okay. what happened. I was mm. like, yo, what y'all think of these pants? And the, y'all was the like. The pants that people who are listening may not be aware of were these tidy whitey skinny jeans <laughs> that Mike decided to wear at the move day of remembrance. I'm covering they my face. They were unprecedented. I'm covering my face White because they were unprecedented. You know what? I'm going to wear them again just because people giving me so much. Yeah. Anyway. So I want you to tell me two things okay. that inspired you this week. Let's think. So one thing is that the weather finally kind of broke this week. Okay. And so I spent almost every day outside in nature walking i took a walk by the water and that was very inspiring because i feel like i'm a better person when it's warm outside Uh (laughs) i'm I'm happier (laughs) and so that really lifted my spirits and then something else that inspired me is that in the last week my students we had graduation okay and so i saw several of my students how many students um let's see i had 
maybe eight advisees graduate wow. with their master's degrees. And then one student who I'm on the committee of who got her PhD. Wow. And so it's just wild that I get to support people in like pursuing their dreams and, and their education. careers yeah. and what they're going to do for the rest of their lives. And this, yes. these are the things that are going to like help them raise their families and that's and contribute to our understanding about things that matter to them. And so that's really the best part of, to me about being an educator is watching, like bringing up with us the next generations. Well, congratulations. Thank you. That's a lot of work. I mean, with all of these different categories and all these accolades you have on your name, to see it come to fruition and see it play itself out that way it must be very gratifying. Extremely. Well, it offsets the the you know the challenges of navigating these institutions. There's a lot of challenges within these institutions. We'll we'll get to some of those. So one of the things that I definitely wanted to talk about was this week marked the one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Something that comes to my mind, like sitting across from you, an educator, an activist, right, an organizer. What comes to your mind when you hear George Floyd? one year anniversary what a bunch of things flow through my mind but the first thing that flows through my mind is that this is a man who should still be here mm. you know i think you know we can think about the way his his murder catalyzed uprisings and a new phase of our movement maybe maybe it brought more people to the struggle but first and foremost he was a person mm. who was taken from us who was taken from his loved ones and he should still be here. And so I really tried to sit with the humanity of George Floyd and all of the folks who've been taken by state violence and learn about what he meant to the people who loved him, his daughter, his brothers, his, his friends, his mom that he called out for. And so that's really the first thing that comes to mind. When I saw the video. You watched it. I watched the part where he said, mama, I'm yeah. through. And when he said, mama, I'm through, Adler was like, what just happened? It was heartbreaking. I mean, especially since his mother had been dead herself. The whole experience is, 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 is infuriating. Mm -hmm. It makes you want to fight. I mean, it, you know. It made, all, it made the world want to fight because you know, it's an accumulation of so many losses, so many like everyday ways that the police and the and state systems take our lives. And so, you know, I remember this time last year watching TV and the news. I don't really watch the news like that because I find it like they tell us lies, right? <laughs> and uh. it's not motivating to continue struggling, right? But that day I was watching the news in part because there was an uprising happening mm -hmm. in Minneapolis. And I remember seeing the police station on fire. Yeah. And I felt, I felt instinctively, this feels different. Mm. And I think it felt different for a lot of us who were watching that. And so... I think many more people than usual stood up to fight because we recognized that there was something different about this moment. Oh, well, there was definitely something different. The level of intensity, not just in Minneapolis, but like around the entire world, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, people are calling it the George Floyd uprising, right? right. Um, and then shortly after, so many other people were killed too. I guess I have a question for you that sparked a lot of debate in households. And there's this this goal that people have been talking about for a while. And that question is, abolish the police? Is that a real thing? Is that a tangible goal? Is that a reasonable thing to do? If we're abolishing the police and abolishing the prisons too, because that's a big part of the conversation, what do you do with Derek Chauvin? So I think to answer that question, first of all, requires us to be clearer about what we mean by abolition, right? So when we talk about abolition of policing and prison, which the reason why we're talking about policing and prison at the same time is because they're extensions of one another. Police exist to send people to prison. Prisons can't exist without police as the foot soldiers, right? And so part of the... um like the way we have to orient ourselves and even being able to process this is number one, abolition is not overnight. Okay. Right. We talk about abolition as a process, as a horizon, right. That we can work towards. Right. But that there are a number of measures that would happen in order for abolition to be reached. So for example, if we look at policing, we're talking about, you know, one of the reasons why we talk about defunding is that defunding as a process that could happen reasonably soon, mm-hmm. right? It means that we are stripping policing structures of their financial power and redistributing those resources into the the type of things that can keep us safe. So people having access to jobs, funding our educational systems, all of the things that the state neglects in order to be able to invest billions of dollars around the U.S. and around the world in policing instead of things that actually benefit communities directly, right? And so on the one hand, when we advance this conversation about abolition, we're really talking about a a process of stripping carceral systems of their power, but also creating the conditions for actual safety. Because part of the reality is that police don't actually keep us safe. (laughs) That brings me to my next question. Okay. Is there any data, any studies that show that people having jobs and better education, less crime is committed? Sure. I mean, there are whole fields of scholarship. I mean, this is not the work I do specifically, Mm -hmm. but... I'm thinking about sociologists who like do that kind of, or even economists, people in the social sciences who do the work of helping us to understand the relationship between quote unquote crime and you know things like class, things like access to resources. And I think a simple um, way of thinking about this, you know, stripping away all of the academic discourse. I'm sure you've been to communities of non-Black people, Uh let's say like the suburbs, Uh right? Okay. And we know that crime is happening in the suburbs. People (laughs) are doing drugs. People are selling drugs. People are scamming people. Mm -hmm. You know, people are engaging in domestic violence. They're they're the, the same things that are sort of stigmatized in 
urban or so-called inner city communities, we know that those things are happening everywhere. The difference is that policing systems function to criminalize it when black people do it, when brown people do it, when poor people do it, but not when everyone does it. And so I think part of my reason for bringing that up is that it shows that the, the issue around policing is not simply a matter of crime is happening. It is really about the way that policing functions to continue to oppress people who are already oppressed. <laughs> when I was a kid, <laughs> and you said I'm old. 500 years ago? <laughs> so you know what? <laughs> I'm just playing. Mike is young. You're yeah, young. I'm young. I'm about as young. Youngish. <laughs> youngish. That's the new show, Youngish. Mm-hmm. Blackish. What's the other one? Um, Washedish. <laughs> you a hater. <laughs> you made me forget what I was going to say. My bad. Um, <laughs> something will come to me in this fertile brain I got. When you were a kid. When I was a kid, and when something happened, you know, domestically or whatever, we called each other. I mean, especially for us, like, I mean, you know, growing up in the hood in Philly, as a move child, as a, as a child, period, but especially as a move child, we did a lot of calling because somebody was always trying to do something. And we never felt like we could call the police to protect us or help us. And I, I know it's the same is true for a lot of other other people. I mean, you, you, myself included, I've never looked at the police as as uh, as someone who is there to protect me ever. I was driving today and as I'm rolling down the, down the road, I got this trailer on the back of my truck and and the police are behind me, right? And like, <laughs> is it just me? Or is no. It, is it just, like, I'm nervous until it's over. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm not afraid of, you know, you know, to fight or whatever. I, I've been through it. But just the fact that they're behind me just makes me nervous. I don't feel safe at all. So let's talk about you personally a little bit. Okay. I mean, we ain't going to get too personal. I'm just <laughs> you're looking at me like that, like, wait a minute, hold on. At the top of this episode, I ran down some of the, some of the organizations that you're a part of, right, mm-hmm. and some of your advocacy work. So for the people out there that don't know mm-hmm. about this mural that um, was not just placed at a spot, but right across the street from Philadelphia's City Hall and right where the Frank Rizzo statue was removed from. And you're not on on this mural by yourself. You're accompanied by my heroes. Ramona, Ramona Africa. Pam, Pam Africa. We said at the same time. Let me get some wood. <laughs> I don't know if that's Comrades that. in struggle. Yane, Yane Indigo, Indigo. Kazia Ridgeway. Um, Dr. Alice Stanford, who is a huge reason why many of the members of our community have been protected from COVID. Yeah. So how did you feel when that like went up? My first response was sincerely, like, who am I to even be on a mural? Mm -hmm. Because I think my own, and and you know this just from organizing with me, I hope, Mm -hmm. like, I don't, do this for the acclaim you know a lot of times i don't even be telling people what i'm out here doing you know so it's not really for the optics it's really about what we're struggling around and so there's the part of me that is so focused on the work that felt uncomfortable at feeling like i was being singled out in a way and obviously not singled out because Mm -hmm. 
there are other Black women who are featured in this incredible mural by Russell Craig, who um, was commissioned to display this mural as a part of a series of murals that are, are honoring Black women organizers in the city of Philadelphia today. So I felt, I first felt uncomfortable because I was like, okay, I don't want people to think I'm like, you know, trying to be out here Elbow on room. some DeRay McKesson Elbow on some room. like <laughs> Sean King. I mean, on some, you know, some of the names. I mean, I was going to say no shade, but it is what it is. <laughs> but, you know, we know that in this moment, there are some people who are really looking to, to be put on uh-huh. through their activism. And mm-hmm. so I felt uncomfortable with that. However... I know how for how many years move Mm -hmm. and folks like our comrades in Philly for real justice have been struggling for the removal of the Frank Rizzo statue, which happened last summer at the very beginning of the uprising in the city. You know, I believe in the vision that we need to be able to see these black revolutionary futures and to be inspired by that. And then when I actually saw the mural itself, Mm -hmm. which is, it's black women in a line. And you can actually imagine that, you know, there's eight of us in the mural, but that line of people on the front lines extends beyond the mural itself. Mm. And we're all looking, like we're looking into the future. It looks like we're looking ahead and we're standing shoulder to shoulder. Nobody is in front of each other. And then to be in this continuum with two women who I would not be an organizer if not for Ramona Africa and Pam Africa's example. And so I had to allow myself to be humbled and to accept that recognition. Or I chose to accept that recognition because, you know, I I don't want to devalue the work that I, I contribute to our organizing community. And so I just kind of had to like sit with the discomfort <laughs> of like, yeah. you know, being recognized in that way. But I'm I'm truly honored and I'm honored to stand shoulder to shoulder with like our our revolutionary elders and also my sisters who I struggle with every single day. When I saw it, I was like, whoa. <laughs> and I'm looking at the different faces and I'm like, and I and I didn't know it was going to happen. I found out about it probably the day before. Oh, really? Probably the day before. Mm-hmm. I talked to Yane and she was like, um, yeah, so they're doing this thing. And, and if you can make it down. I'm like, wait, 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 what thing? I feel like I told you, though. Maybe. Anyway, there was a lot going on. There was a lot going on. Maybe my old mind forgot about it. I doubt it, though. <laughs> no, there was just a lot going on. You know what? I wasn't sure if it was going to happen because... You know, the mural was unveiled um, two days before May 13th. Mm -hmm. And two weeks before that, you know, we found out about the whole issue with Penn Museum. And so my focus was not even on that at all at that time. So I could see why it wasn't at the top of our conversation list. You brought up the Penn Museum. I want you to explain it. Mm -hmm. When you found out about this Penn Museum thing and what you found out and your reaction. So I found out because you told me. (laughs) You were the one who told me. We at that point for months had been planning for like a move Memorial Weekend around May 13th, 2021, which would have been the 36th anniversary of 
the bombing of Muth headquarters in Osage Avenue. And, you know, you called me, I think it was a Saturday or Sunday, and you said Penn Museum has the remains of Muth children. And so in the past month, since we found out about that, we continue to learn about the levels of violation and disrespect and disregard that essentially hinge on the fact that, you know, many of us know in an in a basic sense. I don't even think most people know in the deepest levels what happened on May 13th, 1985, mm-hmm. but people perhaps know in a broad sense about the bombing of MOVE of, and of how bomb, it resulted fire, in the fire. It resulted died. in 11 people, five children, six adults, animals being being murdered by mm-hmm. the city of Philadelphia by a black mayor. And for, for many people, the story kind of ends there, right? This horrible thing happened. 2020, city council passes a resolution to apologize um, the the mayor at the time, Wilson Good, apologizes. But then a month ago, we find out that it doesn't stop there. Right. Two forensic anthropologists um, associated at the time with the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Dr. Alan Mann um, and his student, uh, Janet Monge, were uh, paid to help identify the remains of the move victims who the carnage was so intense and so just extensive that they had to bring in outside help in order to be able to identify the folks who were bombed and then burned alive. And not only did they, were they hired to consult on that, but somehow, despite the fact that, you know, move members believe that they've buried their loved ones, 30, 36 years ago, we find out that um, Penn Museum has held hostage the remains of Delicia and Tree Africa. And part of how we find this out is through whistleblowers at the museum, but we also learn that Janet Monge, who was now one of the head curators at Penn Museum, taught an online course affiliated with Princeton called Adventures in Forensic Anthropology, in which she was displaying and manhandling and disrespecting these remains on film in a in a module called Losing Personhood, the case of MOVE. And so part of what we found out in this time period is that the remains, I mean, I don't I don't know what other option there is except that the remains were stolen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? If if people think that they've requested and received the remains of their loved ones, and yet somehow you still have them in a museum where you're teaching them, prodding them, studying them, you know, doing this quote unquote investigation with them that no that you had no right to do, mm-hmm. right? Um, then that means that they were no one consented to that. So that means it was theft or some kind of criminal activity. So we we talked a little bit about this on one or two previous episodes. With Abdul Ali? Yes, with Abdul Ali. And then my mom and I talked about yeah. just our experiences and, and all of that. And you've heard you've heard these things. Yeah. If there's one thing that you could share that's been like the most I guess disturbing or something that really stands out to you that you can share 
what what would that be? I think something that might set my perspective apart from like the really valuable conversations you've been having about this on the podcast that I really appreciated listening to is I'm a faculty member at Penn Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I'm also an anthropologist. Mm. And so in that work, I teach research methods, right? And so I grapple with and try to teach my students about what it means to do ethical research with living people. But I think for me, some aspects of this that really require attention that I feel like sometimes get lost because of the other more pressing dimensions of this, right, is just the way that museums themselves are literally the result of theft. (laughs) You know, before the revelations around the move remains, we were protesting the museum because we found out that the the Samuel Morton Cranial Collection, which was established in the 19th century, it contained the, the crania of enslaved people from Cuba, of indigenous people, and also of black Philadelphians who'd been grave robbed. Something that people don't know is that Franklin Field, which is where the Penn Relays happen, which is a huge international track and field every year, year, Mm -hmm. it is on the literal graves of Black Philadelphians. It used to be a burial ground. And so Samuel Morton stole those remains to establish this cranial collection. And the reason why he wanted the crania is because he wanted to use it to make a case for the inferiority of non-white people. What? So you you probably have seen like some of this old school racist science uh-huh. where they measure crania and say, like you've probably seen like Caucasoid and it's got a bigger brain, <laughs> Negroid, Asiatic. Like it, it, it's, it's um, making an argument through measurements of crania about black people and non-white people's inferiority. It was one of the foundations for modern medicine, the fa- one of the foundations for just modern science as we know it, these fundamentally racist and white, white supremacist presuppositions. Now, I'm drawing attention to that because it shows a continuity. This happened in the 19th century, mm-hmm. and this happened in the past 40 years, right? And so there's something fundamentally white supremacist and dehumanizing and violent. So basically what I'm trying to say is that we ought to understand the university in a certain kind of way as another site of state violence towards black people. We talk about policing, Mm -hmm. right? We talk about what happened on May 13th, 1985 as evidence of the structures of state violence against black people and black revolutionary struggle. But What Penn shows us, what Princeton shows us, is that the university is actually a participant in that process as well. I mean, the the way you link it so closely to white supremacy, sounds like you're saying that these are white supremacists, like directly. What, the university? Uh, Monge. Well, I mean, listen. I mean, Janet Monge, I mean, I know Janet Monge defended That's exactly what I was going to say, which is that in 2011, 
um, I learned in an interview that was conducted with a black um, physical anthropologist who sort of talked about, his name is Michael Blakely. It was in the Black Agenda Report. He talked about the history of anthropology and museums and physical anthropology, which is the discipline that forensic anthropology is within. Um, he talks about how in 2011, Alan Mann and Janet Monge wrote an article basically defending Samuel Morton, who is the person I told you collected these crania in order to make a case for the inferiority of non-white people based on these um, cranial measurements. They, in 2011, want to kind of defend him from the folks who discredited his work because of its obvious white supremacism. Mm -hmm. They, in 2011, want to say, well, yes, he was racist, but his science had value. And so I think that's actually, it makes crystal clear this very point. If you, in 2011, choose to defend a white supremacist, mm -hmm. we should not be surprised that you have the remains of Black girls who were the victims of one of the most egregious cases of state violence in, in modern history, we shouldn't be surprised that you would use the methods of white supremacy yourself. Okay. I, if, I mean, if it walks like a white supremacist, <laughs> if it talks like a white supremacist, maybe it's a white supremacist. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's, you know the interesting thing about Alan Mann. I know where you're going. Is that <laughs> there's a T-shirt mm -hmm. with the helicopter, and if you if you've seen it, you know it. It's a classic move. It's a classic move T-shirt with the the satchel, the bomb being dropped from the helicopter. Black and orange. Black and orange. And at the bottom of it, there's a quote mm -hmm. that says, "This was not an accident. This was deliberate murder." The, circumstancing, the circumstances surrounding it were horrible. And even more horrible to me was that the perpetrators were never in any way punished. That was a quote from Alan Mann. You know what is really so disturbing about that? A apart from the obvious, I remember at the press conference that MOVE organized right after these revelations went public. Mm-hmm. Move members were wearing that, that T-shirt, yeah, and, and and it made sense because for thirty something odd years, people have been, or I don't know when the T-shirt was created, but nineteen ninety two, I think. So for thirty years, people have been wearing that T-shirt, and so there's something so grotesque and so violent about the fact that the same person who would point a finger and present themselves as somehow an ally of MOVE, which is why it's on the t-shirt, right. would at the same time have been holding hostage the remains of MOVE children and see absolutely no problem with that. There's something quite evil about that. Yeah. When I heard, when I heard that it was man, I've met man once or twice. I did not know that. Yeah. We had a lawyer in this, in, a, in 1990, 
four or five or something. And I, with, I was with Ramona and we were down in, in his office in, in downtown. And the lawyer, Paul Hesnecker, he said, I'm going to bring in, bring in this forensics expert who's going to talk about this, that, and the other and, and whatever, whatever. I didn't know what forensics meant. I didn't know what anthropology meant. I was a, you know, right. a kid. And he comes in and he starts talking about where people were shot and what he thought and all these things. And I'm sitting there looking like, I didn't know that happened. I mean, I'm learning about move for the first time about this incident and more details. I'm still learning. Right. About we're still it, right? finding out stuff. And I and I'm sitting there like listening to him talk about the different people that he believed were shot. And I'm not really paying attention to Ramona because I'm just like mesmerized by this information. And he says, then he says, I want you to know that I'm not a cruel person. I'm not a mean person. I'm not an evil person. I'm not an insensitive person. I just want you to know the truth. And I'm look I'm I'm kind of trying to figure out why he's saying this. Wow. And then I turned around and looked at Ramona. And her entire face was covered in her tears. And you could see that the whole 10 minutes that he was talking, she was crying. Mm-hmm. And her pants, like you could see the tears on her clothes, like her pants were wet. And I didn't realize that was him because in my mind, I never saw him before. Right. Until we started digging into this and then somebody pulled up a picture of him. And I said, that's Alan Mann? You mean you realized this recently? I realized this two weeks ago. Two weeks. I'd never seen him before. I, I read the quote right, a, a thousand times. I know the quote by heart. I've read it a thousand times. But I never put the image. I never, I why, never why, saw why him before. How could I see him? Right. So when I saw the picture, I said, that's him? I remember him from 1994 or whatever, whenever it was. I didn't know it was him, though. And the, the statement that he made when he was talking to, to, to the lawyer and talking to Ramona, I mean, I was there. He wasn't really talking to me. I was just with Ramona as her 14-year-old security. Um, <laughs> but the things that he said, I'm not an insensitive man. I'm not, you know, I'm not. And I'm just sitting there looking at him. And, Ram- and then when he left, Ramona said, she said, he says that he's not an insensitive man. She said, for him to have that information and see how it affects people and not blink an eye tells me that he's an insensitive man. Hmm. And I'm just like, to me, I was just thinking like, I never knew those things before. I right. never heard anyone say those things before. I, I didn't know any move person had been shot. I just, I didn't know what to think about May 13th. No one explained it to me. Right. But um, that was my experience. That was my only encounter with Alan Mann. And God, I wish I knew then what I know now. Anyway. I'm hearing you say this for the first time. And we've, t- we've talked about these things 
so much in the past month. And I can only imagine how disturbing it was to realize that you've been in contact with this person and also to to go back and just like he was hiding in plain sight, really. It was. It was exactly that. It was like when I saw that picture while we were searching on the Internet or whatever we were doing, I don't remember how it came up. I think I was looking on the Internet for something mm. for him or whatever. And when his face came up, I'm looking like the, the first thing that came to my mind was, that's not Alan Mann. That's somebody else. That's I know who that is. That's the guy that was in the lawyer's office that was like supportive. Wow. He was, he, you know, if the Move Nine trial had, or if the Move Nine had a trial, Alan Mann could have possibly been the a, a person who could have corroborated Move's um, uh, the assaults from the police on Move or whatever because he knows certain information. Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking about. Because that's why, I mean, why would our lawyer bring him in to talk to us about something, right? right? So it was just like, that's not, and the quote, it was it was like, ever see those horror movies when like the, the like, the, the, the like life flash, the life flashes before your eyes, the whole thing just like mm-hmm. rushes towards your face? That's how I felt. You know, it was like, what another twist. It was crazy. I think that's something that really, it's one of the things that like have been keeping me up at night about this. Um, I just think about y'all. I think about MOVE um, members having to relive all of this again and having to like look at the past 36 years like with new eyes. Oh, yeah. And there's something so terroristic about that <laughs> that you can't even trust like your memory of the past because there's all of these new layers that were there that you that were concealed, that were hidden. I I never like this moment going back in time and reliving, reimagining, revisiting May 13th, mm-hmm. 1985. This right now for me is harder than when it actually happened. Because when it happened, my I was six years old. My, my you know, right. I didn't know anything, any details. I didn't know who was killed. I didn't know how many people. My grandmother kept me away from that. My aunts, they shielded me from that. Don't watch the news. Don't talk to anybody in school. You just stay away from any any of that kind of conversation. And I remember asking my grandmother, like, where, where's Tommaso at? I asked her, where's Tommaso at? And just as I asked her that question, she she told me, she said, look out the look out the window. You know, we had a we you know, we had a tiny house on Reno Street in Philly. And um she said, look outside. And I looked outside, just as I looked outside, a bright red cardinal landed on a branch. Mm. And she said, that's Tommaso. If you want to see your family, look outside and look at life. That's where your that's your family. That's where your family is mm. with life. 
So I just took that like that's where everybody is. And I didn't really question it anymore. So now to like to like dig through these boxes and like learn about what happened. I mean, I remember my grandmother going to different places to identify people. Mm-hmm. And I remember her going to um funerals. She asked me, did I want to I remember her asking me, did I want to go with her? And I and I, I I didn't know what to say. You know what I mean? She said, This is your uncle and your cousin. Do you want to go? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was about to say, yeah, I guess, because you know, she was going. But I could tell she really didn't want me to go. But she couldn't she couldn't take that from me. Right. You know what I mean? Um and I could it looked like she was kind of sig- signaling for my other for one of my cousins who was older, who knew them. He knew them much better than I did because he remembered them. He was older. So she was so it looked like he was she was trying to signal for him to get him to like keep me with him. Hmm. So he started talking about he's going to stay home and work on this bike that we got and, you know, something. And he said, you should stay with me. Hmm. And and so I did. Um. So now to to 36 years later to dig through these boxes to see faces to see the details and the descriptions and to see the lies right on these reports that say things like accidental mm-hmm. it's incredible and it's it's like it's it's I always saw the kids' faces. Mm-hmm. I think about the kids like every day. Like it, it, if if a day goes by where I don't think about the kids, it's very rare. But now, I I see them a different way a little bit, and that's really haunting. Hmm. It's really haunting because I don't want to see them a different way. I don't want to remember them differently than I remember them. But that's what's kind of being forced. Hmm. Um. Hmm. I can't exactly imagine because there's something so specific about your experience, especially as a moved child, you know. Um, But, you know, we have looked at some of these files together and it's so dehumanizing and violent, even just the records of what happened and not like the way people are referred to, the way their remains are referred to, there's a level of disregard even just in the file folder. Um, And so like that feels like a haunting, even as someone who did not have the the opportunity, to, the privilege of knowing these beloved family members. Yes. <sighs> okay. Let's let's change let's change directions change here. I want to <laughs> <laughs> I want to change gears. My question for you, Doctor Crystal Strong. I have a couple of questions, but one: uh, What's the end game for you? Hmm. Like, where where are we going here? You're you're driving this car, and we're all going on a journey with you, right? Where are we hmm. going? I mean, my ultimate destination is I want Black people to experience freedom and liberation. And what does that look like for you? 
you know, there's like a narrative of like what it is not, but there's also the narrative of what it is. And the narrative of what it is not is like all of these oppressive structures Uh from policing to capitalism to um, just, you know, in, in all of its many layers of economic exploitation, white supremacy, you know, imperial, like all of these things that hold black people around the world down. Like if, if we are to live the lives we deserve, if we are to live the full lives we are meant to, to, to live, those systems have to fall, but they also have to be replaced by the kinds of support and care structures that, um, constitute community, right? To Mm -hmm. be able to have the things that you need, food, water, shelter. Basic needs. Basic needs, right? To to be able to live full lives that can't be interrupted by these systems. Um, These are the things that my freedom dreams are made of. Mm. But, you know, I think a lot of my work has really fallen into a few different buckets. I mean, I think that's a wide imagination Mm -hmm. given where we are and where we've been for hundreds of years, right? right? And we all have a part to play in that. And the part that I feel I'm best suited for, it has to do with kind of helping us to see the international dimensions of our struggle. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of my work has, has been on the African continent um, for the past, you know, over 15 years, like my some of my first like my first book project is about youth activism in universities in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And so I lived over there for years um, over the course of. You've gotten a lot done in your life. <laughs> you lived over there. I did. You didn't know that. Uh, you may have told me that. Well, maybe not because I feel like we have had like other things to talk about. Yes. But <laughs> we got a lot of But I mean, part of the reason why it felt very important to me is, you know, when I think about like some of the freedom fighters I really look to, they understood that black people need to unite, right? That our struggles are interconnected. And for me, I think especially in more recent generations, there's a way that we have been made to lose sight of that, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I feel it's it's incredibly important for us to um, understand ourselves as African people and also to understand that, you know, if we seek freedom for ourselves, like that means the liberation of Africa, that means the liber- liberation of all Black people. And so I feel like that's one very important area of of um, contribution to me, really strengthening these contemporary Pan-African solidarities and struggles. And I do a lot of work in that area. Another piece is around education, mm-hmm. right? Um, nobody comes out the womb woke, you know what I mean? <laughs> like we have these have transformative experiences that help us to understand our conditions, help us to understand who we are, help us to find our purpose, find our place in the world, in the struggle. And so I see education um, as a really important political arena. Okay, so that, that it brings me to let's get explicit. Can we get explicit? Let's okay. So <laughs> this is just a part of the segment where I ask, are we cussing? We can you can curse if you want. That's okay. not that's not the thing of explicit. <laughs> okay. Explicit is this this tough question. I'm just joking. <laughs> you can curse if you want. The shit, damn, fuck, whatever. Um, or like Pam Africa says, motherfucker. motherfucker. There you go. <laughs> 
Do you have kids? Do I what? Do you have kids? No, I don't. If you had kids, mm-hmm. would you encourage them to go to the University of Pennsylvania? I asked you that question because we're talking about what Penn Museum is involved in and all of this stuff. Yeah. And what do you say to the people who group you with Monge because you're at Penn? The same way the police department say all cops are not bad. I know you're not calling me a cop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking this we can question square up. <laughs> because people have said things to me about this. They're like, yeah, well, so-and-so and so-and-so, but they work at Penn. So I want to clear it up for the people who have these questions. I'm not mad at this question. So there you go. So what I the first part was would I encourage my would I encourage my kids to go to Penn? No, I wouldn't. Okay. Now I hope that when if I'm blessed to have children that they are going to be autonomous, free Black children who are able to, with my guidance and support, choose their path. Okay. Right. And so it could be that they understand their path somehow intersecting with a pen education, but that is not what I am going to be setting as a standard for them. Okay. You know, I, I did not, you know, I'm first gen, um, college, everything. Okay. <laughs> um, and you know, I learned about most of what I know about college, particularly like before going to college from TV. <laughs> and so you know, I didn't like a different world. Yes. <laughs> a different world. You know, Laura Winslow wanting to go to Harvard, like uh, all of these things. And so family matters. Yeah. I mean, wow. These were kind of like immediate like role models for me. I got you. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is that if I had more understanding about higher education, I would have chosen to go to a historically black college for mm-hmm. at least one of my educational experiences. Okay. I think it is very important for, especially since, I mean, you know how we roll. It's all black, everything over here. (laughs) But yet somehow for some people that doesn't extend to education. It doesn't extend to where they choose to live. Mm -hmm. And so I think we kind of have to like think about that and what that communicates. Right. And Mm so I, I hope that my children would, um, really strongly consider or and and choose to go to a historically black college or even to go to a college like a university on the African continent. Mm. You know, I've spent a lot of time in higher educational institutions outside of the US. Uh-huh. Um, and so I would want them to have that experience of not having to exist within predominantly white institutions. I think if if that's all you know, that constrains what you think is possible, right? And that creates a kind of like minoritized experience as the standard, as what is normal, right? And that's not the only possibility. So anyway, that's that's like a long-winded uh-huh. response to the first part of that. But as far as <laughs> the other part, am I like, am I in cahoots with Janet Monge because I happen to be employed by Penn? I mean, I feel like my organizing work speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope it speaks for for me more than I can speak for me. But, you know, I'm in Penn, but I'm not of Penn. And something I I tell my students as often as I can is that I never stepped foot on Penn's campus until I was being interviewed for my job at the age of 30. Mm -hmm. And I'm from Philly. And so, you know, I didn't approach Penn as this like pinnacle of excellence or achievement. I work at Penn. You know, it is an institution in my community that has a very 
damaging relationship with my community. And I will never allow myself to forget that. You know, we were protesting in front of the president's house at Penn last month. Right. On on Wednesday. Yeah. And so that was the Wednesday protest. It was. And so I feel like if I was trying to position myself as a defender of the institution, you know, I wouldn't have been moving like that. And so I'm very clear on where my commitments are. And that's to my community. Um, It's to like raising my own and our collective consciousness so that we can um, imagine other wise possibilities. Um, And I really, you know, it's like my research, right? That you read at the beginning. I see schools as a site of struggle. Mm -hmm. I see Penn as a site of struggle. Mm -hmm. So do you, I guess this might be a redundant question. Do you worry about your job? Like, do you worry about that they don't like what you're doing? Do you worry about that? Um, I understand that it's a very real possibility that there will be consequences for choosing to be an organizer, Mm -hmm. choosing to be critical of my employer. Those are very real things that are possible. And then sue their ass. Well, I mean, and and something that I think is important context is that I don't have tenure. I'm not a tenured professor. Can you terminate somebody for protesting against a wrong? You can find ways to remove people. And we've seen examples of this, like um, Geo at Drexel. Uh You know, there's lots of radical professors who've been pushed out of their institutions, like even looking at what happened with Mark. Montero. Montero. And so I don't feel safety at all, but I can live with that. Okay. I can live with that because, you know, I think about, like, I just had to get real with myself about like, which side are you on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, actually about, like, I feel emotional even saying this. Like, I think about the fact that I'm employed by an institution that held the remains of your, like, loved ones. I don't have the privilege. Like, I, it would be so audacious of me to be more concerned about my fucking job than to be concerned about pursuing justice for something that that is so deplorable, so inexcusable. And so whatever happens, I can live with. And I mean that. I I know it. I know it. I've seen you. I've We've rolled. Till the wheels man. fall off. Till the <laughs> Chris, wheels fall uh, off. All right, let's change the subject, Chris. Oh. <laughs> 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 I'll be trying not to, man. All right, it's all good stuff, Chris. Mm-hmm. It's all good stuff right now. All right, they ain't coming out. They're not coming out. Were you having a moment? Uh, too, a little bit with nah, me. Not really. Yeah, kind of, kind of. It's real, Mike. It it is. It's it, real. It is, and these things that happen, it's so messed up that we're still in this position where we got to worry about consequences when we are not the perpetrators of this problem this whole thing in the first place i mean right now we're stuck in this investigation that we got to do because they destroyed evidence they misplaced deliberately they're holding remains of people and we and we're have having to come and clean up their mess and try just to try to find some level of justice and accountability this whole thing is really really messed up and it speaks to 
the issue of white supremacy, you know, and prejudice and um, the injustice that we've experienced ever since we've been here. And, you know, like something I was thinking about, too, that, you know, people may not know who are listening, like we are working together. (laughs) Right. We're working together on this archive work. And that in like that's connected to this same institution by virtue of my involvement that is causing harm to you directly and so like for me i felt and feel i have zero choice but to let you know and y'all know that fucking institution like we like we are committed to the things that we're committed to and I just feel like we we have to I have to you already like we have to to stand up for what's right at the end of the day like we have to be able to live with ourselves morals over money period and that's what move has taught me that's what move has taught me that's that's that to you know Never give up. Never you know, give up. Pam out here. Worth, if, it's worth, <laughs> if it's worth fighting for, it's worth fighting until you achieve your goal. That's and it. That's that's the way we roll. Chris, we could do this all day. We could. We really could. <laughs> <laughs> we could do and this do, all day. And we do all the time. Yes, we do. We, <laughs> we spend a lot of nights strategizing, next steps, working on projects. Chopping it up. Chopping it up. I appreciate you. I appreciate you too. Tell the people out there how they can connect with you. I am at Miss K Strong on uh, Twitter. Uh huh. I'm out here in these streets. Twitter up. I'm out here on on the book of face at Crystal Strong, but mostly I really try <laughs> the to book do book of face. I'm just I like that. That's that my nice. parents, but mostly I try to connect with people publicly at on Twitter at Miss K Strong. But see you in the streets. That's other your, than that, that's your uh, your main uh, social media handle. Yeah. And also, you know, there's other um, platforms like we have the uh, Pan-African Activist um, Solidarity Network. We do these Sunday schools where it's like a popular education series that um, amplifies the work of Pan-African organizers who were on the front lines of global Pan-African movements. And so that is archived on BLM Phillies social media pages and so that's another place to kind of plug into some of the organizing work that I'm doing you never stop you're on the move you never stop every time I think I'm keeping up with you like we talking I don't even know how you find time to do some of the things you're involved in that's how I feel about you though. I mean but you know what that's how it is when you're on the move you on the move you on the move I'm trying that's to be it. on the move that's Great. it all right, folks, that's a wrap. I need all of y'all out there to thank, show your love to Dr. Crystal Strong for being a real one. And thank y'all for listening. Take a minute to give us those five stars and so we can keep this movement moving. I got to keep on doing what I do. If you really like what you heard, make sure you give me the five stars. And make sure you're following the podcast so you never miss an episode every time it drops. Till, till next week, we got to say, on the move to the people. Say on the move to the people. On the move to the people. There you go. In the spirit of my pop. <laughs> Peace out. <laughs>